Welcome to Make Your Move, the podcast designed to help you get on the property ladder and then figure out what the hell you're doing once you're on there. From deposits to mortgages, surveys to moving day, we can help. Make Your Move is brought to you by Really Moving, the price comparison site for moving home services. Let's get into our episode. Welcome to our third episode with property expert Kate Faulkner, all about finding a property diamond in the rough. Kate joins us to highlight what's out there, why there's good news for first-time buyers, and how to get a great deal. We talk through when to compromise, when to negotiate, and how to decide what you really need in your home. It's a really positive discussion about how to find a home, and we felt quite uplifted after it. We hope you enjoy it too. What Kate Faulkner OBE doesn't know about property isn't worth knowing. As the creator of propertychecklist.co.uk, as well as the go-to property expert for the likes of BBC, LBC and Moneybox, she knows the ins and outs of property market across the UK and has some great tips to share with our listeners. She's also responsible for setting up working groups for the industry, including the Buying and Selling Group and the Lettings Industry Council. Kate is passionate about finding solutions in the property market and exploring private rental reform. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Today, we are excited to be talking about finding a property diamond in the rough. So the best way to find a great property, where should you be looking? What should you be looking for? Should you be compromising? So let's just jump in. Should first time buyers feel hopeless about the market? A lot of them do at the moment. Uh, Well, I think if you're a first time buyer, you've probably felt hopeless about the market for some time because you're constantly being told that the market's going to crash or that the market's going up. And apparently if it crashes, it's bad news. And apparently if it goes up, it's bad news. Somehow there's got to be somewhere in the middle. And the honest answer is I don't think so. So the reality is that first time buyers since 2014 have actually been stress tested on mortgage rates of about six to seven percent. And That's based on repayment mortgages as well, which were higher than the previous interest-only mortgages they had access to. So there was some unexpected news recently from Rightmove that actually said first-time buyers are the drivers of the market this year and that they're seeing sales are actually about 4% up rather than down. And it's our cash-rich second-steppers or downsizers who we thought would rule the roost this year who are actually holding back. So there are definitely lots of first-time buyers out there. The other thing is that we are seeing some good innovation. I don't know if you've seen the skip and building society. They've come out with this product specifically for tenants. If you've been paying your rent on time for the last 12 months or more, and there will be lots of eligibility checks, so do see a broker and ask about it. But it means that you can buy without a deposit. And that's not been around too much since the problems that we had in the last recession. So the good news is, is that the lenders appreciate it's tough for first-time buyers. So they are looking at innovative products, but sensible lending to boot. So that's coming in. And it was an interesting thing in London that actually first-time buyers and indeed second-steppers are looking to stay in flats because they're actually really good value. They haven't gone up any anywhere near as much as house inflation, house price inflation. And rather than moving out, according to Zoopla, to Brighton and Hove or these areas where house prices have gone up quite a lot, they're preferring to stay, get a good value flat and avoid the commute. So there's good news out there if you look for it. And we certainly shouldn't be relying on average house prices from indices this year. They are about at their worst when a market is going up or down. So they're not great when they're steady, but uh, when they're moving up and downwards, just ignore them. It's all about individual property on an individual street. That's what's important. Of course, there are always things like first homes is out there. 
where you can get 30% discount on a property and uh, shared ownership. And I know you've written quite a lot about those. So uh, those are still available. Would you say there's um, a lot of take up on those? I mean, shared ownership, we see probably now that Help to Buy is gone, there might be more people going for it if they're eligible. Has the First Homes programme had a lot of sort of interest? It would be difficult to have a lot of interest for the simple reason that if you compare it to Help to Buy, Help to Buy was about 50,000 properties a year and they're only planning on doing 10,000. So if they are in your area, go take a look because you will be one of the few that have got them. So go talk to local help to buy agents that are still out there to see and developers to see if they've got that. Of course, there is the deposit unlock scheme, not the not the greatest description of a product, but that is a similar to help to buy in that you only need a 5% deposit to buy a new build home. Of course, your income has to stack up. It's not as generous as the help to buy scheme, but that is also out there. So it's about working out what right scheme is, uh, what it is for you. And certainly, you know, if you don't need to stay in a particular area, which not as many people need to do post COVID, you could work much more from home, go find somewhere sort of cheaper. So I always recommend if you're looking in London, for example, and you're struggling there, then somewhere like Peterborough has actually got quite a lot to offer and cracking commute times into London. Oh, wow. Yeah, I would have immediately thought Peterborough is ages away. <laughs> no, it really isn't. It's about, uh, so I'm on a line for me and I'm in Grantham, Newark, quite some distance away from London, but it's just, a, it's an hour and a quarter for me to get in and an hour home. And we're cheap as chips here, so uh, but you might not want to commute that long during the day, but you can go down to, if you go to Peterborough, you're talking about 40 minutes. Are there any other compromises and things that people can do to find a more affordable property? To yeah, I think the, the problem is when you... Uh, Going for a first property, particularly if you feel like you've had to wait an age, you've got your list in your head of what your dream property, where it's going to be, what you want it to be. And absolutely not wanting to burst people's bubbles. It's just a step on the ladder. You know, we talk about that ladder and I think we've forgotten about it. Getting that first rung on the ladder, getting into property is your first start. So I'm probably five properties in to my to, till I got my dream sort of farmhouse. And even then I couldn't afford anywhere. I kind of gave up my London job and set up by myself and moved out to a rural area because that's where I could afford the, the farmhouse, you know, with the beams and the nice garden near the river that I wanted. But I didn't start there. I started in a little two bed on a busy road in Croydon and I had to buy with a friend because I couldn't afford to buy myself so the trick is really I think that don't look at the necessarily the location you want because that's likely to be quite expensive what I used to do was always buy on the edge so when I was in London I bought on in Acton but I had Gunnersbury Park Chiswick and Ealing next door but Acton was substantially lower even though I was on the borders. So worry more about making sure you've got a property type that you can firstly afford, even if things go wrong, lose your job, get sick, those kind of things. And also make sure that it's somewhere, you know, you can you can sleep at night, it delivers what you want. Location you can get over. If you have to have a bigger commute, you read a bit more, you get jobs done on the train or the tube or whatever it is, or you exercise more and you cycle so you don't have to go to the gym, whatever it might be. I always think it's property first. The only time when that probably doesn't apply is if you've got kids and you need to get them into certain schools where then you might have to compromise on the property that you have and choose location over that. So just do bear in mind multi-millionaires and billionaires compromise on on property. We just don't have enough of what everybody wants, where everybody wants to live at the price point that everybody has. So don't try and stick out for something that, that won't necessarily exist. That's uh, that's really important. I think I've fallen into that trap myself because I haven't joined the ladder yet. But it is, we talked about this last episode, Yeah, remembering that it is a ladder. It's not just a like 
one step up, you know. It is. And this is a step. If you think we've got about, I think, the, the range between sort of 26, 28 million homes in the country. We only sell 1.2 million a year. So the kind of chances of the property that you want being on the market when you want to buy is actually, it's, it's almost a miracle it ever happens that we match people and properties. But the only reason we do is because everybody up and down the chain has to compromise. But as a first time buyer, it's important you get on that ladder first, you get used to owning your own home, paying the bills, you build up your credit, you earn some more money, hopefully earn a little bit of uh, equity over time. And then that allows you to trade up to the next property. So that's that's the bit that's important. And that's why we've always called it the property ladder. And you will get to what you want. You might not have to take five jumps like I did. You might only take two or three, but don't not get on the ladder because you can't find that perfect property because then you're likely to constantly miss out. And as we've seen over the last few years, hell from one disaster to another. Um, so uh, get on when you can, when it's safe to do so and when you find something that's practical rather than your ideal home. And is there a way of finding, so like, did you know that Acton was cheaper because you knew the area or do you just do some searching around outside of areas that you liked? Well, we, we, we've worked together and, you know, I have a bit of an analytical brain when it comes to things like this. So uh, I used to be in sales. So my background was to, to analyse sales and to pitch products in a good light. So I was very good at analysing numbers and learned to do it very well. And as a result, the biggest thing I've learned moving into the property market is that whatever the indices are saying, the averages are utterly useless. So to as a point, if you in London, you'll be told every month that the average house price in London is half a million. You think, well, I, I can't, there's no point, I won't bother. We talked about shared ownership, you can get those for 60, 70,000 pounds. So, particularly for first time buyers, they're utterly, utterly useless. So, it's really important first job, get to a broker, understand what you can afford safely. And then, once you've got that budget, go and find properties and roads that you can afford to live on that you'd like to live on and then track back one of the beauties is much better than average house prices is we know now what the what properties have actually sold for going back 20 years and that's great because you can look to see well have they grown over the last five years because if they haven't well maybe they're actually a bit of a bargain as we mentioned flats in London if they've grown rapidly then it might mean there's a little less growth over the next few years and you'd have to stay a little longer to get that growth out of that property have a look to see how the property performed during the last crash. So I always check to see how much did a property fall from 2000 to 2000, uh, 2007 to 2009, 10. And if it was more than 20%, I'd worry because that was the average fall. But if it was only 10%, then I'd be like, wow, this is a really good property on a really good street. It's based on history. It doesn't always prove the future, but it's actually not bad doing that in, in the property market. So analyze, analyze, analyze again. And I spend six months to a year watching the property market before I buy. There's no hurry at this moment in time so take your time and you'll be able the beauty is is once you really know individual property prices and individual streets you will know whether a property is a bargain before anybody else and sometimes agents do misprice them and while we're talking about compromises and stuff i think a lot of people obviously have like in their heads they have a timeline of when they want to move and stuff do you have any advice for um people who like have a set time when they want to move in terms of how to compromise there or how to manage that yeah i mean in terms of how long you should stay in a property then you if you're buying you're probably looking at five years plus really anything less than that renting is it's don't believe the figures we get from the reports that say buying is always cheaper than renting they assume you have this unbelievably high deposit which if everybody had 
they probably wouldn't be renting in the first place. So if you're doing sort of 85, 90, 95% mortgage, then don't believe everything you read on that. So there's the, the timings in property are very much, you probably need five years plus to stay in a property to make the whole expense of it worthwhile when you when you come to sell and see some growth. I think the second thing is, in terms of timings, there are busier times. And I just clocked after a few years that if I bought in November early December and made my offers then. Everybody's been sitting on the market for three or four months and they are desperate to have a be under offer come Christmas day. So it's a tremendous incentive for the seller to let you have a bit of a deal. And then what I found out was um, you get another couple of bonuses. So if you then buy, say, early January, having made your offer, if you exchange before Christmas or uh, January time, bearing in mind the, the legal companies and removal guys are aren't as busy. So that's a good thing. You can get things done quicker. But when everybody sends you their Christmas cards, you can do a you could do the post office redirection and you can then tell everybody that you've moved in your Christmas cards. So you only you only have one set of posts because that's gone up a lot. And the other thing you can do is you get all the January bargains. So you, you can fill up your house with loads of goodies for a lot less than you would during the year. So that's my uh, that's my buying triple timing advice november december if you can wait till then is is a good time but clearly if you've got kids to get into school you're having a baby those kind of things then uh, that's going to rock your timings a, a little bit more and at the end of the day it's more about when's the right property available for you at a price you can comfortably afford i think that's it, it, over and above everything else but ideally for me i i shop around when nobody else is in november and december so is so people should people not have like if they're like a first time buyer they're like I want to buy by July, and then they find out everything's really expensive in July. Yeah, which is it's best not to have that set timeline for things. You're absolutely spot on. Just don't put yourself under that pressure because that property that's right for you might not be ready by then. And you know, be as flexible as you can. Yeah, you know, because if you're in rented, if you can move back in with parents or you can move in with a friend, always do that because then you're not sort of tied into rental contracts, um, which are not easy at this moment in time to get a hold of anyway. So yes, don't just don't put yourself under that time pressure. And a good example of that is lots of people did that for the stamp duty changes. And we always find out, and I think this is from some of your own analysis that first-time buyers end up overpaying if they try and get something before a first-time buyer stamp duty and they overpay more than they would have saved in stamp duty in the first place. So that's a kind of perfect evidence to say why you should just never, ever put yourself under pressure. Yeah, I think we've said before, you know, when we talk about house prices and it is the price is what it's worth to someone. And that's always the case, isn't it? If, if someone's willing to pay that amount, then that's the price. But if if that's not, if it's been overpriced and it's not had any interest for months, you know, you can go in there and, and offer a deal and sort of see what's available. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, I'll give you a bit of a shock news that Kate Faulkner overpaid for a property <laughs> knowingly. There you go. And why did I do that? It was my mum was trading down. It was a property next to her best mate who would I know would be there to look after her. And they the people were just adamant. They didn't price the property according to what the surveyor said they priced it according to how much they wanted to spend on a next property 
and how much they wanted to give their kids for a deposit. But I knew mum would stay in the property. It would be her last property. I knew she would stay in that property for quite some time. So I, I overpaid. And sometimes it's worth doing that, particularly if you're going to be staying there for the long term. So it's not always about getting a deal. And we were in a lucky position. She was trading down so we could afford to do that. And uh, I, did, I think doing it knowingly is important. Uh, so, uh, but I knew that we'd make that money back, and actually, we did very well because we sold it during COVID, and we got ridiculous <laughs> uplift thanks to all the panic buying of everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> when we, especially for first-time buyers, you're looking at it as a home. You're not necessarily looking at it as an investment of equity, which it is. We do, do we still need to consider how sellable a property is when we buy it? Yeah, I think you do, and not just sellable because we, you, you know. Things happen, life happens, life gets in the way of stuff. You can fall poorly. I'm sorry to talk about these sad things, but you can fall poorly, you can split up, all of these things can happen. And therefore, you need to, particularly in your early days when you're first getting a rung on the ladder, you need as much flexibility as possible. However, one thing I would say, which I've told to a lot of first time buyers, is that you don't necessarily need to worry about the selling side what you can do and what I've always recommended to first-time buyers when we've done some analysis for them is if you are buying property and it's a new relationship or you're not you're a bit worried you're not sure whether you, your job will be stable after two or three years or something then check now before you make an offer what that property can rent out for how much money will you have to spend upgrading that property to make it legally lettable and meet the health and safety rules? And that's not a bad thing to do anyway. So I always have a gas check and I always have an electrical check when I buy a property. And you would need both of those if you were renting a property out. Then your backstop is if if something happens in life that doesn't suit you and the market isn't in your favour, then the likelihood, particularly because we're so tight on stock in the rental market is at the moment, is you'll be able to rent that property out, move back in with friends and family or rent somewhere else yourself and be able to cover your costs and then move back in when it suits or indeed sell at a time that makes it worthwhile from your perspective. So another tip with that is to mention that to your mortgage broker so that the mortgage you're on, some lenders, you just need to ask them, can I let this property short term? And for, for a little bit of money, they'll let you do that rather than you have to shift mortgage as well. So my, my tip is really these days, because the rental market is so tight is to look at being able to rent it as opposed to necessarily being able to sell have to sell earlier on you mentioned about looking at past prices you're you know considering something and how flats don't tend to go up in price as much is there a sweet spot like i assume if it hasn't gone up in in value at all is that concerning or or is that good uh so it could be either to be honest the big thing with flats is that you need to know the leasehold length Again, I know you've got some good articles on this. So even I, I never visit a flat or consider a flat for viewing unless I know the leasehold length, unless I know the service charge and unless I am aware of any major works coming up. So it's really important to do your research. The, some good news is that there are some more regulations coming in that agents have to put this information on the portals. So you should be able to find that it's not being enforced at the moment. And I'm afraid unless you tell them they've got to do it or they'll be fined, it doesn't always happen. But it has only just come in this year. But that information should be 
more readily available. And to be honest, if an agent doesn't know, I wouldn't use them, even if it was a fabulous flat, because they're probably going to have other unknowns that you're going to find out as you've made your offer and then the sale could collapse. So, And leasehold are much more likely to collapse than freehold, just because there's so many more questions to be asked. So there's, it could just be that the property was priced very fairly. So I've had several properties that I've picked up that actually the agent really erred on the side of caution. So I got an extraordinary good deal. So it's not it's not rocket science to learn what property values are. And as a first time buyer, if you do your research, you're actually probably better to understand what property's value is than an agent because you've looked at all the properties on the market, whereas they will have looked at some comparables and the one that they're selling. So it, it is really important to understand why. And of course, you have got the backstop. So a good surveyor good local surveyor that knows that block for example knows the problems that goes on in that uh, goes on in that property and that might be an agent as well they're your backstop in this so they will help you they will help value that property for you so if you're not sure it is and you've got a bit of extra cash it's worth just getting a little bit of a valuation and finding a surveyor early in the process even potentially before you make the offer but it's not i mean the the market goes up and down sort of 20 30 years ago or especially when like when my parents bought the, the sort of expectation was you buy, it'll increase in value, you sell, you buy, it'll increase in value, you sell, and it'll go up. But we can't really expect that, you know, as first time buyers now, can we still expect that you will always, you know, it should always grow or you should go into it expecting the value of your property to go up? So as long as you hold on to it for long enough you should be fine. What's long enough? Well, uh, we looked at the data from London, all of the London boroughs, when prices fell from their height in 2007-8. We looked at how long they fell for and how long it took them to recover. So if we take a worst case scenario of quite a serious recession, which we're not certainly not at that stage yet, that was five years. Everywhere else around the country, it took 10 years. So as long as you're really looking at 10 years plus, prices will go up. And again, typically, if it's a house, it's more likely to go up in value, as we've discussed, than a flat. The interesting case that doesn't so match that was um, the Northeast. And again, there'll be differences on different properties on different streets, but they didn't recover their average value, 2000, the height of 2007 and 8, till 2021. So well, you've got to bear in mind the market reports year on year, which is not good enough, in my view, for buyers and sellers. You need a 10, 5, 10, 20 year analysis of how much properties have gone up in that area. Uh, when we looked at the northeast in 2021, prices might be up by 10 percent, but it doesn't, didn't mean they'd necessarily covered to their average value in 2007, 8. So it really depends on your area and the property that you're buying. That's why looking at the historical values is quite good. So I wouldn't bank on equity going up, but you can make offers. You're a first time buyer, so you haven't got anything to sell. And some people like myself, I when I sold one, I had a, a second property down south. When I sold that, I wanted it to go to a first time buyer. And I gave it them for a better price than I was offered by the agent because I wanted it to go to a first time buyer. So there are people like me that would do that. It wasn't huge amounts of discount, but it was a nice discount anyway. I think first time buyers, if there's one criticism I have, and it's, it's a little unfair, but they don't make offers and they panic. And this person had actually, this buyer had actually done that. They'd offered me more money than I'd, uh, I'm remembering now, they'd offered me more money than I had the property up for. And I was like, Why, what are you doing that for? I haven't got any offers yet. This is ridiculous. But they wanted me to take it off the market because they'd missed two others. 
but I wasn't motivated by the money. I was motivated by the fact that it was a first time buyer, not an investor. And I wanted to sell it to them. Always, always try and negotiate something, even if it's all the, the things in the kitchen, whatever it might be, always try and negotiate because you never know the other person's circumstances. And the beauty of the sole property price data is you know what they paid for the property typically. So some people in London might not be able to offer you a deal because they're selling it for less. There are some flats going for less now than they were five years ago. So you can see if they've got, you know, if they've got decent equity in the property, they might be more likely to accept a deal. And I think I think that's really important. So prices, though, typically over time, we have a shortage of properties in most areas. The reason Northeast doesn't grow so much is they don't have any population growth. London, tons of population growth. So when people look at saying, oh, I'm going up north because London's too expensive, I'm like, well, that's lovely. But we, we don't have the capital growth that London has had and it will come back a bit. It won't come back as much as it was because prices are capped in the south now because of affordability changes to mortgages that we mentioned earlier. Yes, you will likely see some price increase, but if you can build that in from the start, that's a nice cushion to have. Do you have any like tips for negotiating? Because I think a lot of people obviously be their first time doing any of that and it might be a bit daunting, the idea of like negotiating on a price with someone. So... What I've always done is just, I've always said, just be fair. So if somebody comes in, if I've got a property up for sale and somebody comes in with a low ball offer, I'm like, you ain't, you ain't getting that <laughs> ever. Cause I know what you're going to do. If I accept a higher offer, I know they're probably going to reduce that offer come exchange and I'm not having it. So if somebody comes to me and says, look, I'm a first time buyer, love your property. I can see it's up for 200,000. I've looked at two other, three other properties similar to this. They seem to be going at 185,000 over the last few months. Prices are kind of coming down as opposed to going up. Is there any chance I could uh, we could do a deal at 185,000. And I've got the big thing is, is to make sure that you are buyer ready. So you have your legals ready to go, you have your mortgage broker signed you off that you have the affordability. And please, please don't ever make an offer without having a mortgage broker confirm that you can afford it. And you also have a surveyor ready to go. So, you know, if you get, if you make an offer and you do it at a lower price and you get your everything the ball rolling on everything in the first two weeks, that reassures the seller that they've got a good buyer on their hands. So just be honest. I mean, sometimes I've just gone in and said, I love your property. I can see it's up for 200 grand. I can stretch to 180 and I can show you my finances on that if that's useful. And they've gone, yeah, that's fine. You, you, you clearly want the property and everything. So compliment here and there doesn't, doesn't harm. And doing your comparables. That's the big thing is finding those comparables. And of course, don't forget, sorry, <laughs> suddenly remember this there aren't there isn't just one price for a property there's the marketing price there's the price you offer there's the price that's agreed there's then the price that the mortgage lender puts on it and there's the price that your surveyor puts on it minus anything that's wrong with that property so that offer price isn't necessary that's accepted isn't necessarily the last price i negotiate again if there's good reason from my surveyor to do so or my mortgage lender so it's not the be all and end all. So the other tack that I've done is if I like the property, if I've said, would you accept 180? They've said, no, I'll say, okay, I'll pay the 200. And then if my surveyor comes in and says it's worth 185 because these, these 15,000 pounds worth of works need doing, then I will drop my offer based on the evidence I've been given. And I mean, does that, how do people take that? If you've made an, you know, you've made an initial offer and then you've come back and said, actually, the surveyor said this to do they go, okay, I'll look at the report, I agree? Or do they go, no, you've, you know, you've just gone back on it? Most time, what I find is that people have actually bought into the 
have bought into the fact that they've sold their house now and they don't want it to go back on the market. As long as what the surveyor has written is fair, then most people will accept that. So that's how I've always negotiated. I did have a surveyor once that just said, for crying out loud, bag this deal. They've priced the property wrongly. Don't argue anything and accept that that you're going to be paying that price. Get it done and get it done really quickly before they realise they've underpriced the property. So you might be, if your surveyor says that, just go for it. So you might be surprised. But the, the trick is you make the offer subject to survey and you put that in writing. And there's a lot of questions as to whether you should share the survey report with them. I always do. I'm just like, look, the more transparent we can be, there's the less transparent. We don't have a lot of transparency always in the market and that needs to improve. Buyers should have a lot more information up front. People think it's okay, I think, to to tell porky pies (laughs) in property and it isn't. The honest approach works much, much better much, much better. So I'm always very, very honest about it. At the end of the day, that surveyor is acting for you as the buyer and they're there to protect you and your money. And that's what's important. So I, I, I share it because why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't you? If you, you know, you're asking somebody to knock 10, 15, 20 grand or more off a property, you should give them a good reason, really good reason to do that. I mean, I was just thinking, obviously, with like survey, like structural issues or whatever that found on a survey could bring the price of a property down. Is like when you're initially looking, is there any way to like figure those things out or like look at, or is it always, that always comes in a survey later? Because I feel like some people might worry about like, I found a really great flat and then they do the survey and it turns out it's got all these issues and they're like, I wish I'd known about that before. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. In an ideal world, not only would we sellers see sellers instruct legal companies day one of marketing, but we'd actually like in Scotland. So uh, the best place if you want to go that is buy in Scotland because they already have that system in place. And you can see the home report as it's called there as you look online. So no different to seeing the details. We tried to bring that here, but it, it didn't work. It, I, I'm sure it will come. But there are things you can look for. And again, I'm fairly sure you've got a checklist on this of things to look for when you've got quite a comprehensive viewing uh, viewing properties. So if you see cracks, for example, uh, you can put you, you can put a 10p piece in. Those are things to kind of worry about. Look for damp and mould, particularly in flats, because they're they're difficult to get rid of because it, they're structural issues typically. And as a result, they're not under your control. Rattling windows, you know. Um, so when it comes to looking at a property, viewing a property checklist, and I'm pretty sure that that you've got quite a comprehensive one. So you can check out a lot of things yourself, especially for houses. You can look at things like flooding. So you can go online and check on the environmental site to see whether it's subject to flooding. I always like knocking and talking to neighbours about that. I bought a property which was literally just up the road or just at the bottom of my road was the Thames. So I found the oldest resident on the road and knocked on his door and said, hello, have you ever had flooding? And he went, oh, I'll come and show you. And so he took me down the road and he went, right, here you go. This is as far as the flooding has ever come up in the last 40 years. And I'm like, yep, that plus we're safe at our end of the road. So you can check for things like that without getting a surveyor in. And again, when it comes to a flat, a lot of it is actually more the things like the service charge, the management company, how long it'll take to get the management pack. It's it's more those things, less structural. So leaseholder, you've got to work out 
a lot of the legals beforehand as much as possible. So see the leasehold agreement if you can, because sometimes you might be restricted. Uh, you might not be able to, you might want to work from home and you might not be allowed to run a business from, from that property. So you might want to put in um, uh, hardwood flooring. You might not be allowed to. So at least I'll definitely look at the, look at the legals as well as structural issues. But there's a lot you can spot yourself. And then if you've got a surveyor lined up, hopefully they should be around within sort of a couple of weeks, particularly at the moment. Over the pandemic, you might have had to wait three, four, five weeks for a surveyor, but um, they're a little more available, most of them at the moment. So what would be your do not touch when it comes to properties? You know, Is it things like damp or... Can you still buy a property and kind of do a damp treatment or are there things that you'd kind of go, no, I'm not even getting involved with that? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm probably not the right person to ask because I, I love a little bit of uh, uh, structural work and renovation and things like that. However, with my kind of first time buyer hat on, actually, one of the biggest things is beware if somebody is selling due to probate or divorce. It's a really horrible thing to have to point out, but you can wait a year a lot longer to purchase a property depending on what stage they are at and people you know particularly in a divorce if sadly one wants to sell and one doesn't that can cause the the paperwork can be slowed down horrendously so very much look at the seller's circumstances and from a first-time buyer's perspective we chatted about negotiation the faster they want to move the better as long as you've got a good legal company broker etc that's when you can do a deal but it's also when you can kind of buy quickly on the physical side damp and mold is as long as you've got it diagnosed properly don't don't get a builder to do it because they don't they don't know what's talking about i remember a program and this couple had spent 50 grand diagnosing why the corner of their property was falling into basically the land and it was all on builders who'd come in done all these rectifications what had actually happened when they finally got round to getting the right person in which was a surveyor all that had happened was the drains had collapsed and it would have cost a few thousand pounds you know maybe up to five thousand pounds to have fixed it and they'd have got it done and dusted so as long as you diagnose the problem correctly which is you know, you want your your surveyor to do that for your properly qualified surveyor to do that for you, then that's that's the most important thing. And then it's down to how much work you're willing to do. Issue with damp and mould, so I had it in the farmhouse that I have now, is we had to strip the plaster out up to about, I think it's about a metre, maybe a little bit more. And then you typically have to leave it like that for six months for the damp to dry out before you replaster. And not everybody tells you that. So again, Get good timber and damp experts in who have ideally qualified surveyors. Not all of them are, but make sure they have good trades qualifications and also make sure they have some sort of guarantee, which even if they go out of business, means that they are that that, that guarantee will still stand. So those are the kind of things that, that you need to be doing. So it depends on on how much work you're, you're up for. You know, if you're a busy couple or a busy professional um, or you've just had a kid probably the last thing you want to do is to do a full house renovation people do though and love it and thrive on it and uh, they certainly uh, don't need the level of sleep that I do these days so uh, that that might be your bag but if it isn't then I would I would avoid some of those things and certainly look at new builds as well new builds aren't what they were they they are some absolutely cracking properties and now that we have the new build ombudsman in place that means if you do have problems you have somewhere free to go to for the first time as long as that developer is a member of the scheme so new builds are a, a good attraction good good value when it comes to utility bills etc so it's about what matters to you so think about the running costs as well as the, the costs of renovation 
when you talked about like um, not buying for people like divorce or probate, how easy is it to find that information out about sellers? Uh, you ask why they're selling. Yeah, you just talk to them. Yeah, yeah, and to, yeah, on to, the agents should know. So, yeah. and again, the agents, any agents you're dealing with, they should now have filled in a property information questionnaire. It's called a PIQ. These are really useful. They are part of a move that we have to try and give buyers more upfront information. And going back to when we sold my mum's house, this was particularly critical. We put I said, right, these are the three things that I want on this form and I don't want anybody viewing the property unless they know about them. One of them was my mum lived in a, a bit of a suburban area and you weren't allowed to keep chickens. Don't ask me why. That might have been quite important to somebody buying my mum's house. So we made sure that was understood. Mum had a, a loft room which could only remain as a loft room. It couldn't be classed as a bedroom. And the reason for that was we didn't have the correct height on the staircase for escape if there was a fire. And finally, we had this weirdest thing, which I so tried to get rid of and I couldn't, was the council owned this strip of land at the bottom of Mum's garden, which we rented from them for £35 a year. And we backed onto a, an old railway line, which was then a conservation walk. And so it was of no use to the council whatsoever, but they wouldn't put up the resources to to sell it to us. So, and some people owned, some didn't. So I made sure that those three things were everybody that viewed knew about them because then we weren't getting an offer based on uh, something. We'd also had some subsidence. It had all been sorted. We knew what the subsidence was. We had guarantees. So we provided all of that information up front. And that you know you're dealing with a good agent when they, they start providing that level of detailed information. But ask for it, look out for it. Certainly if they're NEA members, they should be giving you a PIQ. Do you think there's, I mean, people sort of always talk, we, we talked in some of the past episodes about sort of people talking about, you know, in our day we did this and, you know, young people these days are lazy and all that kind of stuff. Is there enough stock of first time buyer homes? And especially saying, you know, if, if someone wants a fixer upper, isn't it a bit hard to find a fixer upper these days? Like, aren't they taken by investors or are they still available? If, if you were someone who wanted to buy cheap and put the effort in, are they still around anywhere? It's a super question. Uh, I'm afraid Sarah Beanie really put the kibosh on doer-uppers for first-time buyers. And I remember that because my, my first one was a doer-upper. And if you were buying a property that needed the kitchen, new bathroom, bit of replastering, you could get it for a bit of a deal. Whereas now I'm afraid it will probably go for more money than it's worth doing up. That's certainly been my experience because people have got it in their head that they're going to do it at this property, haven't done their research, which hopefully you will, having listened to this, on what properties are worth when they're done up, for example. So so it is it is quite difficult. You do have to hunt. And I can only really say it's the timing. So even investors like Christmas and go on some holidays, poke around at times when everybody's not looking. And uh, certainly, you know, sort of February, March, April, you're unlikely to get get something like that but you never know and don't be frightened of going to an auction as long as you do your research as long as you're doing your work I'm certainly seeing I, I get auction reports coming through every week and I'm seeing a lot more properties available partly because investors of all the people that are cash strapped this year it's actually more investors particularly if they're looking to buy to let because when you're looking at yields of sort of six five six percent and you're looking at mortgage rates heading up to five percent there's not a lot of margin around so actually second half of this year is a is a pretty good year where you could compete against an, an investor at a, at a better level because you want a home you're not worrying about letting it albeit that that's a good sort of plan b if you need the other thing i was going to ask is you mentioned previously when we've done our webinar and things like that that there's sometimes a lot of variety in price from street to street i just thought if you wanted to give some tips on 
how to kind of get a bargain looking street to street or looking around areas. Yeah. So, and again, you can do all this yourself. And I mean, we, we, we do it for fun, which sounds a little weird, I know, but um, everybody has their little things that they like doing during a coffee break. So you can find vast differences. So I talked about property that I bought in Acton. That was, it was some time ago because it had, I mean, the very postcode specific down in London, you don't get that as much in the regions. But because I had an Acton postcode, you're looking at property prices being sort of 30% less than they were around the corner in Chiswick or in Ealing. And that's basically what you want to look out for. So you need to watch out. So another one, if you haven't got kids and you're not worried about kids, we've seen some roads where one half of the road, one side of the road belongs to a school catchment area and the other one, a different one. And as a result, they're vastly different. And that might not matter to you. Really understanding and looking at those local areas. So what I do is I go search, I kind of get my the value of the property that I can afford. And then I start to look in quite a wide range, wide area as to where I can afford to buy. And you get little pockets of areas where you think, blimey, well, why isn't there you know, something there. So again, using London as an example, if you look sort of 15, 20 minute walk or more away from the station, actually, you'll find properties will be a lot less than ones within that 15 to 20 minute walk. So if you don't have to commute every day, again, that's that's quite good to know about. So it's all about just looking at the streets, going and searching online. And then you'll suddenly go, well, why, why is that? Why is this road that little bit cheaper? And you might find there's a pub in the middle of the road. I remember this from Croydon. There were Every time I went somewhere, I'm like, there's a pub four doors down and it's just like an ordinary street. Well, if that doesn't bother you and you're awake at 11 o'clock at night and you're not bothered, fine. If you get a cheaper property, just remember these properties will take longer to sell. So, you know, you've got properties, um, again, near the ones in Acton. There were ones which were literally under the A4 bypass, which would be going overhead. Another property I I lived in, I rented a room actually, and and it didn't work for me, was uh, I was on the Gatwick Express. And every time that went past, my whole room shook. But if you're a heavy sleeper, that doesn't bother you. Who knows? It might be just the right place for you. So it's about looking at what you can kind of compromise on. But there's definitely things that that can be cheaper. But again, if you're looking at a location specific thing like a pub or a busy road, do remember they will take that little bit longer to sell. Wow. Did either of you guys have any more questions for Kate? Or I realise we've come to an hour, so I know we could probably go on. But um... I had a lot of questions because I haven't bought a home and I think they've all been covered very thoroughly. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's interesting to see how, I mean, I knew that location obviously affected it, but the the minute locations, like you said about the school catchment area and things like that, it's really crazy. Yeah, yeah, it is. We did a thing for BBC a few years ago and it was about 10 years after the crash. So it must have been 2017, 18. Yeah. And we got, we did get a long road and it was in Peterborough and we had flats, which was still 20% below the value. 10 years on and we had a property that was on a busy main road but it was a house and that had recovered its value and then we had a property further up that was just off the main road so the main road was a bit more of a bypass and it was a really nice property and that had gone up in value by about 20 percent. so that was literally within a mile of each other so those differentials when you start when you start looking actually the danger is it's 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 cheaper than gambling, but it is very addictive because you can't you can't help but search. So yes, the, the, there's there's some cracking bargains that you can have just by knowing the right place to look. Yeah. So yeah. So finally, what's your golden rule when it comes to buying a property? Very much for first time buyers, take your time and whatever you do, don't overpay. Particularly at the moment, just make sure you get on the ladder 
comfortably from a financial perspective. What you don't want, which I've seen before, is to go to bed worrying every night. However much that property doesn't feel like the perfect property that you've always dreamed of, you'll you'll get there, but you'll get there by making sensible choices. So really work closely with your mortgage broker to make sure it's affordable and have your plan B that I mentioned earlier. So if you need to let it out, for example, if that covers most of your costs and mean that you choose when you sell, then that's that's the kind of perfect plan. So maybe a couple of golden rules, but uh, hopefully you don't mind me sneaking in an extra one. We've talked a bit about deposits in our first episode. Should first-time buyers be saving for a second deposit for when they move on to their second home? Oh, that's a very good question. If you can, yes. It only needs a little bit of extra deposit money to be able to afford quite a bit more on the mortgage. And it can also give you access to better interest, better mortgage rates if you can get a lower loan to value. So yes, if you can save a bit more, do so. But do you know what? There's a There's a thing about just enjoying yourself for a little bit. It's important to save hard, but you've saved hard. To get on the ladder today isn't easy. You've done that. Brilliant. Just enjoy it for a couple of years and then start worrying about your kind of next move. I do see lots of people kind of like racing from one property to the next. Do you know what? You've got 35, 40 years of paying a mortgage. Uh, We're all living into our 70s for crying out loud. You you know, the one thing younger generations have that, that, that my generation, I'm sort of mid fifties, is we didn't we didn't have the time that you guys will have. I think is it one in four people will live to a hundred. <laughs> Take it easy. We may have been on a little bit of a sprint. You've got a whole marathon to enjoy. So um, don't don't ever forget to take life a little bit easy, look after yourself, have a bit of fun and then get down to a saving for a deposit. And you can do that just as I talked about how you actually save for a deposit. So, you know, if you love going to the gym, see if you can get a job there, get the gym membership for free, get paid and put all that money into savings. You can do things like that. So it doesn't have to be miserable. They do it a lot in Iceland where I went. They all have second jobs, but they have really enjoyable second jobs. And that's because the cost of living there is so high. Just, just remember to enjoy yourself oh I like that yes I think we should start asking everyone who comes on the podcast what your good news for for buyers or first-time buyers is but yeah it seems like there's been quite a few good you know first-time buyers are in a good position in terms of you know making an offer being free of a you know being able to move quickly being able to be prepared that there are advantages to being a first-time buyer there are huge advantages to be a first-time buyer and it's super exciting you've just got a very it is that I know it's a terrible cliche but it is making your head rule your heart but you know the achievement of getting your first home and the only other thing I would say is that don't worry I don't understand why everybody's so obsessed with having huge deposits I just don't think you should when you're starting out buying a home so it makes me very cross when the media comes out and says or indeed the the indices that come out with this you have to have a £60,000 deposit I heard the other day. Well, you don't in Nottingham, where I live, because actually you can buy a property for 60, 70 grand. That's just not true. If it was me, I wouldn't worry about getting a big deposit, particularly because you're on a repayment mortgage. Over five years, ask your mortgage broker, if you got on the ladder now with a 5% deposit, in five years time, what equity would you have in that property? Because you might find it's more than if you spent five years saving for a 20% deposit and then you've had the benefit of the property. So I don't think rhetoric or content has recognised the fact that first-time buyers pay down their mortgage from day one and therefore you don't need the bigger deposits that maybe you've needed in the past. You do if you have to make it up with you with your income, but you just shouldn't be obsessing about it. 
if investors could get away with buying with a 5% deposit, they would, because that's how you make money out of property. You buy a hundred grand property for 10 grand, it goes up by 10,000 pounds. You've made 10,000 pounds out of putting in 10 of your own money. You make more money the lower deposit that you put in. And it's not as risky because you are on repayment and because you can potentially let the property rather than being forced to sell, which has happened in the past. So times have changed. Don't don't listen to all those people because actually the market is very, very different. And and it is better for first-time buyers, really. It's much safer. Yeah, amazing. Kate, do you want to just quickly tell us about property checklists? Yes. So Property Checklist is a site where you can come to. And the idea is, is that we give you absolutely honest, straightforward advice. We're not trying to sell you anything. We've got lots of checklists to help you, whether you want to hang a door, build your own home, buy a new build, you can find out all the key steps that you need to take. So we're a good starter for 10. If we don't answer a question that you have, you can just ask us and we'll get an expert if we don't know the answers ourselves. Also, really important this year is we are monitoring and delivering the reality of what's happening with prices and rents. Whereas at the moment, if you just rely on the media and the indices, you're getting a lot of nonsense because different indices measure the market at different times. So one month you'll be told or one week you'll be told prices are going up. The next week they'll be going down. And that's according to the type of indices and when they measure the market. So we track and have been tracking now back to 2030 cities across the country so we can really tell you what's actually happening in your area rather than focusing on averages and we also do some really interesting data looking at well if the I think we looked at Sheffield the average house price is x amount how much cheaper can you actually get a property for in today's market so do little neat things like that so worth coming to have a look it's all free Uh, you don't have to sign up for anything but you'll get good information accurate information as opposed to headlines amazing Thank you so much. That's all right. Nice to see you all again. Missed you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Next time, we'll be talking to Brian Murphy from Mortgage Advice Bureau about the mistakes that people make when applying for a mortgage. And remember, you can always email us at podcast at really moving with your questions and comments. You've been listening to Make Your Move, the podcast here to make moving simple. We hope you found this episode useful, but as always, everyone's situations are different. So make sure to do your own research before making your move. Make Your Move is brought to you by Really Moving, the price comparison site for moving home services. If you have any experiences or questions you'd like to share or ask that might be put on a later episode, please email us at podcast at See you on the next episode.